Welcome to the Topeka First podcast. We are one church with several locations. Our mission is to reach our community with the message of Jesus. If you would like to give to support this podcast and the ministries of our church, please visit topekafirst.com giving. Enjoy the podcast. Well, there's something about the people that Jesus was hanging out with that were drove the religious leaders crazy. I know we have to be careful who we hang out with, right? We, we've got to be careful who our kids hang out with. We've got to be careful who we hang out with. But Jesus hung out with people that no one thought he should. In fact, Jesus had this incredible love for people that most people didn't even think he should say hi to. There are lessons to be learned from Jesus' life and his interaction with those kind of people. We can learn a lot from observing Jesus. Here Jesus is doing exactly what he's done for years. He's welcoming people who were previously on the outside. Today we're starting a series called The Outcast. The definition of an outcast, if we give it to you, it's from Merriam-Webster Dictionary. It's incredible, right? Is one that is cast out. Profound, isn't it? Okay, there's another part of that. Or refused acceptance. But we're talking about people that have been refused acceptance. In the Old Testament, there were whole nations that were basically outcasts, but individuals were given the opportunity to be accepted by God. For example, think about Rahab and Ruth, outsiders that were given the place of prominence in the story of redemption. In our world today, there are outcasts, and God is still reaching out to bring them into relationship with Him, just as He did when Jesus walked the planet. So here today, we're going to begin this series. We're going to start in the book of Luke, chapter... We're going to get there, but here's the setting of this passage of Luke 15. Jesus, as was pretty typical for him, was with people somewhere. We're not exactly sure where this takes place. The cast of people, the normal characters were there, the disciples, the people who had heard about Jesus and wanted to come and listen to him, curious about the things he might say and do. The religious were there, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees. They were always just close enough to hear but not really listen. But there was another group of people there that day listening to Jesus. And they angered the religious leaders who were gathered. We find in Luke 15, verse 1, tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. This made the Pharisees and teachers of religious law complain that he was associating with such sinful people even eating with them. <laughs> Look, I'm going to read that. I think in my world, I would think that if notorious sinners would come to listen to Jesus, that would be a good idea. Right? I mean, just a, a step in the right direction, quite possibly. Right? I mean, think about it. I mean, if people who have lived a sinful life walked into church, that ought to be a good thing, Right? I mean, it would be it would be a good step. I mean, and look, if 
if people who, who we know are notorious sinners and have lived a sinful life and they walk into the church, we probably ought to be really nice to them. We ought to be really welcoming to them. But on the chance that they're there to listen and that the Holy Spirit's at work in their lives and is going to speak to them, and we ought to do everything we can to be partnering with the Holy Spirit in those moments. Welcoming people, I mean, being kind to people, being overly compassionate should define who we are as people. So look, if you do things that aren't welcoming to people, stop. I mean, seriously. And I know we would never do that. I mean, we would never, like, cause problems like that, right? I mean, we wouldn't. We wouldn't do that. We wouldn't purposely do that. If we're aware of something we're doing, we need to stop. But it's not just here, right? It's everywhere we go. If we're doing things that are not welcoming and kind and compassionate to the people we interact with, we need to stop. We need to change that. See, there's always people who aren't excited to welcome people into their world and their space. That was the case back in Jesus' day. And it's still the case today. But it shouldn't be. See, the Pharisees and the teachers of religious law, they weren't thrilled with the notorious sinners and tax collectors who were listening to Jesus' teach. They couldn't believe that Jesus would hang out with them. And to go further, Jesus actually ate with them. I mean, the horror of that. I mean, how bad can it get, right? But you don't understand. I mean, you don't grasp completely what that means. See, because in Jesus' day, to eat with people meant a whole lot more than just you and I showing up in a restaurant and having dinner at one table and somebody else having dinner over there. See, there were no restaurants in Jesus' day. In Jesus' day, when people got together for a meal, it symbolized something. There was more to it than just eating dinner. It was more to it than just a few people getting together to pack in a few calories in order to live through another day. That was not what it was about. It actually had a symbolism of friendship and intimacy and unity. See, most meals were taking place in homes. And they were taking place in homes, and usually they were eaten with a person's extended family. Those who shared a common lifestyle are the same value. It was quite common, though, even in the Jewish nation and the larger Greco-Roman world. People would gather for meals in other places. They would gather for meals in, say, a temple or a civic building. And when you did that, there was certain criteria that had to be met there. You couldn't just invite anyone outside the home. You would only eat dinner or eat meals with people in your own social group. You, you wouldn't have people coming from other social strata. See, and when, when even when you gathered at the table, see, everyone was seated by status. The host would only invite people who were social, religious, and economic equals. It brought shame upon the family or even the social group to violate those customs. See, to go further, here's the deal. You see, when you look at this, when, when Jesus is there and he, the Pharisees and the teachers of religious laws, he, they, they have everything in them. It's just, it's sort of like fingernails down a chalkboard as, as Jesus is there with people that they 
think are too low to be there. And here's the reason why, because you can see those Pharisees, they had a goal in mind. See, they wanted to live like priests. You see, the priests had a responsibility to serve in, in the temple at one time a year, right? And so for six weeks prior to their service, they had to make sure they were ceremonial clean. They had to make sure that they didn't eat with people that were, that were lower, and, and they had to make sure that they were prepared for their service for the time at the temple. But the Pharisees, they wanted to live like the priests, all year long, even though they were not usually from the priestly class. So here the Pharisees took upon themselves to, 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 to kind of live at a higher level and say, look down on everybody. Jesus is seen over and over again eating with a wide variety of people. Mary and Martha, his disciples, Pharisees, tax collectors, sinners. In other words, while the, the, the Pharisees were, were practicing like a real exclusivity, Jesus is practicing, well, radical inclusivity. He welcomes people in. He's welcoming people to himself. He's, he basically and probably intentionally violated every, well, tradition the Pharisees had about eating. And he did it intentionally. I mean, think about it. He ate with the wrong crowd. He ate with unwashed hands. He criticized the practice of sitting according to status. He encouraged serving instead of being served. He encouraged inviting people to a banquet they couldn't repay. He invited the poor and the disabled. He, he did all of that. Short of the jab a knife into the backs of the Pharisees. I mean, he did it intentionally. Maybe it was in the fronts of them. I don't know. He did it intentionally to drive a point home. Jesus turned every meal into an acted-out parable about the standards of the kingdom. But Peter gets in trouble much later, right? I mean, think about Peter going to the house of Cornelius. What is the complaint when he comes back to the, to the, the believers in Jerusalem? The complaint in Acts chapter 11, verse 3 is, you entered the home of Gentiles and even ate with them. Yes, they complained about that. But he came to faith through those moments and Cornelius in his house and all that. Look, old habits are hard to break. Eating with people seemed to be a big deal. And as you looked at it, it was. But it seems to Jesus that not eating with them was a bigger deal. As a result of the complaints he leveled against Jesus, he decides to tell three stories, three parables, to explain more about the kingdom of God in a way Teach the people why he's doing what he's doing. But once he told the parable, they weren't meant just for the people in earshot. They were meant to intend for them to be moments for us to learn in the 21st century and understand his lesson for our day. What we're about to read, I realize, is incredibly familiar. To a lot of people. But I want you to, as we read and we start to talk this through, would you be open to listening to the Holy Spirit speak into your life? Because I'm confident He wants to. The verse 3 says, So Jesus told them this story. If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them gets lost, what will he do? Will he leave the 99 others in the wilderness and go to search for the one that is lost until he finds it? 
And when he found it, he will joyfully carry it home on his shoulders. When he arrives, he will call together his friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, because I found my lost sheep. A few things here that I find interesting. Sheep had a tendency to get lost. I don't know that for a fact, because I've never really like, been a shepherd. But I'm told that sheep like to get lost. I mean, it's kind of what they do. All right? Look, I was a youth pastor for years, right? And I took kids to places like Worlds of Fun, Six Flags, whatever. All right? Here's the problem. There's always some of them that always get lost. Like, it doesn't matter. It's the same ones every trip you take. Like, every time they come back. The story I heard, I could repeat it over and over again. They come back to me and say, Pastor Steve, I don't know what happened, but, but we couldn't find you. We couldn't find, the, we couldn't find the van. I know we're late, but we couldn't find it. Next year, same story. Pastor Steve, I don't know what happened. We got stuck. We got stuck in this, and we couldn't find where the van was parked. The next year, same kids. Over and over again, lost. Somehow. Look, it's happened on missions trips. Right? If you go to another country, there's people, and there's always a couple that just kind of like... They're doing their own thing. I mean, they're always lost. You may have family members or friends that way. You, you, you may have people who are directly challenging your life and they can't find you no matter where you are. You're like, how do I get there? I mean, like, Topeka's pretty easy. You know what I'm saying? I mean, I knew my way around Topeka before I could drive. Like, as a kid, I could find my way around here. New Jersey, forget it. I mean, it's like, I don't know. Nothing goes in straight lines. and No, it's terrible. Look, sheep are that way. They get lost with what they do. And it comes naturally to the way they get lost, basically, is they're just eating. And they just keep eating. And they just keep eating. And they'll go through a hole in a fence. And they just keep eating, and they can't get back to where they were. And now they're lost. And so now, the shepherd's got to go looking for them. And so in this case, Jesus tells a story. And he says, okay, the sheep gets lost. The shepherd leaves the 99. He goes looking for the one. Now, I don't know, because Jesus doesn't give us a lot of details here. But it does say he leaves him in the wilderness. Hopefully he leaves him with a friend. But a hundred sheep, now 99, he's going looking for one until he finds one. Because if he doesn't find the one sheep, something bad's going to happen, and he's only going to have 99 sheep. See, because that sheep, if it stays lost long, it's going to become someone's dead. Just that simple. And someone's going to cheat. And so when he comes back, and he's found his sheep, he's going to call his friends and neighbors and tell them he's found his lost sheep. Now, time out. Like if I lose a sheep, and I find it, I'm not telling you I lost it. I mean, let's be honest. I mean, why would I do that? That doesn't sound like a good idea. I'm not going to tell anybody I made a mistake, right? I mean, that just seems... But in this case, the shepherd is so happy, so joyful that he found his sheep. He's going to tell everybody, I lost one, but I found it, and here it is. In the same way, verse 7, there is more joy in heaven over one lost sinner who repents and returns to God than over 99 others who are righteous and haven't strayed away. Now, there may be people in our lives that have walked away from God 
because of their own foolish decisions. But that doesn't mean we should stop looking for them. Just the opposite is true. We should be looking for them. We should be believing and praying and just asking God to do something crazy in their life that they would come back to him and follow. Then Jesus, Jesus tells another parable. He says, or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Won't she light a lamp and sweep the entire house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she will call in her friends and neighbors and say, Rejoice with me, because I have found my lost coin. I mean, this seems crazy, right? I mean, ten coins, I mean, how real can that be? Jesus is terrible. Is about a woman who is obviously not very well off. In, there's a good chance that this ten coins, the ten silver coins that she had, was all the money that she had to her name. This may have been the money from her dowry, and the only money that she brought into the marriage, and the only money that she would have if the marriage was off. With ten silver coins, probably each worth about a day's wage. So you can understand about what that is. She loses a coin worth about a day's wage. You can calculate that in your own world. So what does she do? She loses a coin. Look, if I told you I lost a, a dollar in here this morning, you'd be like, What's the lady do? She lights a lamp and sweeps the whole house until she finds it. She literally, she, everything, I don't know what she was doing that day, but she, when she realized she lost the coin, everything in her life changes. She finds a lamp. It wouldn't have been a big lamp. It would have been a small lamp. Maybe think candle, you know, like it would have been some kind of oil lamp. But, but basically she lights a lamp and, and she's, remember, there's no flipping light switches here. She's using a lamp to sweep a house and find a coin. So she's pretty passionate about finding the coin, just as the shepherd was passionate about finding the lost sheep, because it meant something to them. Now, on the outside chance that I lost $100 in this room today, and I were maybe to tell you that you could have it if you found it, what might happen in this room this morning? There'll be people like stiff-arming people to be like, oh, get out of here. But I will tell you, there happens to be $100 lost in this room this morning. If it still remains when I'm done with the service, I'll take it home with me. If you don't find it, I'll keep it. If you find it, you can keep it. I'm just saying, there is $100 in the room this morning, sitting in your chairs.
and no one's found anything yet. Some of you don't look all that interested. I mean, I'm telling you, there is a hundred dollars in the room. And they're in the chairs. What did you find? Open that up. Daniel, what is that? That's a 20. What's that mean? That means there's 80 more. You thought I was kidding you. Uh-oh. Best day in church ever for a little kid. That's an amazing moment. <laughs> yes, where was it at? I wonder how I lost that in a pocket. Where was yours at? It was in the pocket. There might be a trend here. You might want to look in the pockets of the seats that are around you. Just saying. <laughs> I know where the other three are sitting still, so I didn't technically lose them. But so far, you've not found them all. When I do this kind of stuff with students, they're a lot faster than you are. trying to think. Let's see. There should be one. Hmm. Counting about five chairs, five rows forward. There happens to be one a couple rows in, five chairs over. Hmm. I think there's probably one about five rows in, five chairs over. I didn't make it simple, simple. Oh, look, there's... Okay, so that's one, two, three, four. That's one, two, three, four. Hmm. I think there's another one over there. Just saying. Now, now look, look, look. Some of you... Some of you would make... Some of you would make terrible... Okay, okay. Look at there. There we go. All right. Oh, here we go. Okay. What's that? Yeah, it's time for another offering. Absolutely. No, no. It's yours. Now, look, I want you to understand something. Okay, now you need to think about for just a moment. What took place when you actually knew there was $100 in the room? Emotionally, some of you, hey, you would like that extra 100 bucks. I was kind. I split it up in 520s because I wanted more people to win. Okay? But think about this for just a moment. When you begin to realize that there's something lost and you can find it and it is yours, 
you will start looking. God understood that we were lost and sent Jesus into the world to find us. He expects us to recognize lost and go find him. And it starts with the outcasts. It starts with the people like us. It starts with people unlike us. It starts with every person that we ever interact with. He is actually asking you and I to go do something about it with the passion of what the lady that lost the coin had. You will do whatever it takes to find it. Now, some of you were not very good participants. You ruined the illustration. Good job, Daniel. I appreciate that. But when you think about that, you begin to realize that that's what God is saying to us in verse 10. Just as he did in the previous verse, verses, Jesus said it. He says it again. In the same way, there is joy in the presence of God's angels when even one sinner repents. Look, there's a difference between the lady losing a coin and the sheep wandering off and the shepherd losing him. I don't know that there's a huge difference, but there's a difference. But look, Jesus is telling these stories. He's telling parables to illustrate the love that God has for every person, all people, not just people of one social strata or nation or religion. God's love is so great that he is willing to do whatever it takes to find people who are far from him, demonstrated through Jesus' willingness to become like us and to die for our sins. The celebration over someone who was lost being found is huge. When you read that in the pages of Scripture, we, we don't picture that when we came to faith that there was a celebration that took place in the halls of heaven over us coming to faith. As, as, as us as individuals coming to faith, we can't... We can't even fathom, we, we can't fathom that the church would throw a celebration, let alone heaven throw a celebration. We can't imagine our families would ce celebrate. Like, like, are we that important? Yes. So much so that God sends his son not into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. He sends Jesus for us because of his incredible love for us. He, he wouldn't, he would stop at nothing to get the job done, and it included his son. In order for us to be found. So the people gathered, complaining about Jesus eating with such people, didn't get it yet. He tells another story. And we're familiar with the story. Take a moment and listen once more. Verse 11, to illustrate the point further, Jesus told them this story. A man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. Now I'm going to time out. But how many of you, when your kids comes to you and says, I want my inheritance now before you die, you're going to go, no, no, I'm not dying. You are. 
Okay? I'm like, no, no, this is not happening. Because the son comes to him. He basically says to his own father, I wish you were already dead. So I could have you money. And the father said, See, the younger son is entitled to one-third of the inheritance. The older son is entitled to two-thirds. So the father gives one-third of his inheritance to the son, who seems very ungrateful. And he says, here you go. You can have it. It was actually not uncommon. It wasn't very common, but it was not uncommon for that to happen in that culture and at that time. Kids would come to the families and ask for their inheritance. Seems wrong to me. But in that culture and in this story that Jesus has, the father gives to his son. A few days later, this younger son packed all his belongings and moved to a distant land. There, he wasted all his money in wild living. About the time his money ran out, the great famine swept over the land and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him. And the man sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. The young man became so hungry. Even the pods he was feeding the pigs were good to him, but no one gave him anything. Now remember the people complaining, they would have a real issue here because Jesus is talking about like, like feeding pigs, like pigs would not qualify um, as even, it would be revolting to them to hear this story. Pigs, unclean animals, only the lowest of people would work with them and Jesus is using them in the story. When the, he finally came to his senses, verse 17, he said to himself, At home even the hired servants have enough food to spare. And here I am dying of hunger. I will go home to my father and say, Father, I've sinned against both heaven and you, and I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. So he returned home to his father. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming, filled with love and compassion, ran to see his son, embraced him and kissed him. His son said to him, Father, I've sinned against both heaven and you. And I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. Here's a picture of repentance. The son recognizes his sin. The sin of living wrong. The sin of blowing his father's money. I know many people couldn't forgive a son like that. But not the father in Jesus' story. who's so representative of God himself. Verse 22 says, But his father said to the servants, Quick, bring the finest robe in the house, put it on him, get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet, and kill the calf, even fatten You must celebrate with a feast, for the son of mine was dead and has now returned to life. He was lost, but now he is found. So the party began. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field working. When he returned home, he heard music and dancing in the house, and he asked one of the servants what was going on. Your brother is back, he was told, and your father was killed, but fattened calf, he was celebrating because of the safe return. The older brother was angry and wouldn't go in. His father came out and begged him, but he replied, all these years I've slaved for you, never once refused to do a single thing you told me to. And all that time, you never, never gave me even one young goat for a feast with my friends. Yet when a son of yours comes back after squandering your money on prostitutes, you celebrate by killing the fattened calf. The father said to him, look, dear son, you have always stayed with me and everything I have is yours. They had to celebrate this happy day for your brother was dead and he came back to life. He was lost. But now he is happy. If we're going to be like Jesus, we're going to have to get out of our comfort zone. We've been searching for people. 
who are far from God. We have to begin with every person that walks through the doors of the church. We need to be over-the-top welcoming. Bless them, encourage them. Treating every person as if they're the most important person on the planet. Exactly what happened in each of the parables that Jesus tells. The lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son. Each of them was the most important until they were found. And then they were all on the same level once again. Kind of crazy. The lost son didn't get another inheritance. He got a relationship with his father. Which is more important than any amount of money. Well, when you think about it, when you understand that every person that comes to faith, like they're the most important person in the world. Like they ought to be the people that we pursue with the most energy and everything until they come to faith. Now, I'm not saying we just like drop them when they come to faith, but until they come to faith, like, like they are like a prized possession to search for. When they come to faith, they're all equal with the rest of them. They suddenly are welcomed in the family, those same rights and privileges, everything is, is just, we're equal at that point. There's no slave, no free, you know, male, female, anything. Everybody's on the same place. Everybody's on the same level. And it's our responsibility to go find him. I believe if you hear that, I believe that's my car going off. Just kidding. Um, it's the best of you can hear it, but I can hear it. It drives me crazy. Um, I know this side could hear it. I, so I thought I'd just acknowledge everybody can hear the car's alarms going off. Um, does somebody want to find the owner? No, I'm just kidding. Um, Think, think about what it is that God is trying to do in all of our lives. He, he wants us to be people who are searching for people who are far from Him. There ought to be a focus in our lives to go searching for people. If you're not spending time in meaningful relationships with people who are far from God, you are not living how God wants you to live. Okay. Now that may seem harsh and hard. I'm not saying you spend all your time with me. That's not what I'm saying to you. But I'm saying that you must have meaningful relationships with people who are far from God in order to be living how God wants you to live. Our lives are not meant to survive until Jesus comes or we die. Our lives are meant to reflect the passion of God for lost people. Our lives are to be lives of sacrifice in order to see others come into the kingdom. Look, I want you to look at your life and evaluate what you spend most of your time doing and how much of your time is allocated to people who are far from God. How much of your life is spent with meaningful relationships with people far from God in order to impact them for the truth. If you can evaluate your life and you recognize that that's a very small number, there are some changes that need to be made. In order for you to live with the heart of the Savior, it came with one intention, to seek and save lost people. The mission of the church is about lost people. We're going to do other things. 
We're to care for the poor. We're to care for the orphan, the widow. We're going to do all kinds of stuff. We're going to do all kinds of ministry. We are going to do those things because we're called to do them in fulfilling the, the call of God on our lives as a church. But the number one thing we ought to be seeing is our lives impacting other people who are far from God. And if our lives are not doing that, we're not living the way God wants to do. That seems like pressure. It's God's mission for the church. Not my mission for the church. It's my mission as an individual. As a person. There is a reason why Charles and I have been spending some specific amounts of time with people who are far from God, trying to bring them into relationship with Jesus. There's reasons why we're having dinner on Friday night for the plan very important to Jesus. Look, there isn't a single person in this room, from the youngest to the oldest, who can't impact somebody else. And if you think you're past your ability of ministry, let me give you a little perspective. I had a dinner, and I had dinner with a friend in Kansas City last night. He was on staff with us in Illinois. His mom was with him. She's 69. He was a youth pastor for about 30 years. Now she lives in the Dominican Republic and oversees the ministry of the sons of God called Engage. Brought sons of God students that are at a university and she oversees it for the nation of the Dominican Republic. If they want to go into missions, they can sign up after a couple of years and they can go to the Dominican Republic and work for two years in the Dominican Republic and her do her school online and finish her degree and experience missions. She's 69 years old. She had every excuse in the world not to go. She's been there for the last probably 15 years, I think she said. She could have been mad about it. See, she was in ministry with her husband until he had Parkinson's and passed away. She served as a youth pastor for years after he experienced Parkinson's and couldn't hold a job. He could no longer pastor. She pastored students for a long time. Now she's back ministering to 20-somethings in the Dominican Republic and things she told me she was doing, orphanage, school, that, and just the stuff's going on. And I think, I, I want to be going like that at 69. I probably want to keep doing stuff like that when I'm probably in my 80s if I make it there. I want to live my life Surrender to the work of Christ in my life and the work of God on this planet. And honestly, from what I read in the scriptures in those three parables, it's honestly what he wants every one of us to do for the day we die. Because if you walked in here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, I will tell you this He loves you abundantly, He loves you like crazy. In fact, that's why he sent Jesus to this planet, was in order for you to experience forgiveness. For your sins, he did it for me as well. For me to experience forgiveness for my sins. 
So this morning, if you walk in and, and you're not a follower of Jesus, or you find yourself sitting here going, and I'm not living for him. Maybe you feel like the lost sheep. Maybe you feel like a lost son. Well, today would be the day that you say, all right, I'm going to make a commitment to follow Christ. If you walk in there this morning and your life's more about you than it is about serving the king, you probably ought to repent. Or like the son did, he blew the father's inheritance. You didn't maybe do that. You might be wasting the inheritance he's given you. You might be wasting it. The talent and the skill and everything else he's put in you. What are the use for his kingdom? If God has given you everything you have, you know you work for it. But through his blessing, his hand upon your life, it's gotten you where you are. And he's expecting a return on his investment. He's expecting you to fulfill the work of the kingdom. Just like he expects that out of me, he's expecting it out of you. So this morning, there might be some repenting when you go on. I don't mean it has to be crazy. And I'm not saying it's huge sinful things. Sometimes we get too stuck in our own world, a little too selfish. We've got to start working for the king, his kingdom. That's right.